0: Hi, Sarah.
1: Hi, Alison. Um, so, Covid, right? You mm. can't escape it these days. That's, certainly can <laughs> No, no. The, um, so, one thing, you know, before we get started, do you know what gender Covid is in French? The word?
0: Uh, yeah. Well, I've heard people talk about le Covid and I think that's what I tend to say. So, le, I'm guessing it's masculine.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, me too. I've heard that as well. But interestingly, it turns out it's actually officially it's LA. Ah. Um, the Académie Française even weighed in on this a while back based on the fact that COVID is actually an acronym for coronavirus disease mm. and in English, right? And disease in French is maladie, which is a feminine word. So it's la COVID.
0: Okay. Blame <laughs> it, blame it on the women. Blame it on the oh, feminine. Oh, <laughs> uh, But anyway, whatever the gender, la COVID is certainly continuing to circulate while Widely in France, enough for the government not to have lifted any of the restrictions which are currently in place, although it hasn't imposed lockdown either. And we're into the first week of the school holidays now when many people head to the mountains.
1: Yeah, yeah, this February break in school was was pretty much built around the ski industry in France. Um, it's actually spread out over four weeks, so different regions have off their two weeks at different times to maximize the number of people who can get up into the mountains.
0: And now some ski resorts are big and famous, like Courchevel in Savoy in the Alps, but people also go to smaller villages and remote rural areas whose economies sometimes are entirely dependent on this kind of winter tourism. And this year they're suffering uh, because of COVID. The government decided to stop the ski lifts to reduce the number of people that would be going to the mountains.
1: Yeah, and then, of course, there's this this 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfew, yeah. kind of curtails things. And then bars
0: and restaurants, cafes are all closed. Yeah, so not a lot of après-ski going on, which is mm-hmm. what uh, people enjoy at the end of the day. Um, and so even though we're allowed to travel here within France, the ski resorts are not getting their usual tourism. It's a real blow for the sector uh, because it's a huge sector. It's worth about 12 billion euros a year, and it employs mm. around 200,000 people. Wow. Not nothing. Yeah, no, exactly. It's it's, <laughs> it's really significant now. The French Prime Minister announced a recovery plan of four billion euros. That was back in early February, but it, it won't be enough to revive the resorts this year. In the Savoie region, in and around Courchevel, local people really are missing their usual visitors. In a typical year, some 60% of people who go to ski at the upmarket Courchevel ski resort in the Alps come from abroad. At 1,700 metres altitude, Courchevel is renowned for its powdery snow and spectacular views. People flock here to alpine ski. But with the lifts closed and the prospect of going into quarantine for a week if you come in from another country, the numbers of foreign visitors have plummeted. And since December, the station has registered just a quarter of its usual numbers. Most of them are local French tourists, like this family from
2: neighbouring Grenoble.
0: We came for a week in the mountains, the kids are at ski school and we're doing cross-country skiing says this man. It's the first time we've done this much cross-country skiing, it's great to try it says his friend, but it's sad to see how hard it is for our friends working in the resort. Their guide, Bertrand Brun, lives in Courchevel all year round. Out on the snow at 8.30 in the morning, the resort is a shadow of its former self.
2: Place. There are
0: usually open terraces everywhere, he says, with people drinking coffee, preparing to go out onto the slopes, but now it's deserted. The demand for cross-country skiing has rocketed this year, but it won't be enough to fill up the resort. So it's had to think of other activities. Like dog-slaying, snowshoeing and snow-biking. And they have another way of trying to fill up vacant chalets, says Alexia Lini, Marketing Director at Courchevel. Our second approach was to boost remote working, she says. We're offering very attractive monthly rentals to attract city dwellers to come here for some fresh air and work in a very peaceful environment. We charge about 1,500 euros a month for a flat for four people with Wi-Fi. Paul is a third full for the first week of the holidays. At the foot of the empty slopes, mainly local inhabitants like Claude come to take in some winter sun and have a bite to eat.
2: It's
1: such a waste. The
0: Blue sky, fresh snow, it could have been a brilliant season. So when they tell us you can catch the virus on mechanical ski lifts but not on the metro, I mean, what on earth are our leaders thinking? I'm appalled. The drop in economic activity has hit local seasonal workers really hard. This woman's been working in alpine ski resorts for the last 30 years. This winter, she was set to work in a cheese shop in the Morienne Valley, some 30 kilometers southwest of Courchevel. But her four-month contract was reduced to three weeks. My boss took me for a ride. He got me to sign a
1: contract for three weeks and cancel the seasonal one. Then three weeks later, he texted me to say, Your contract's over, goodbye. It's not right. I mean, companies can get financial assistance to help with all of this, and they could have avoided leaving us on the roadside. When they need an extra
0: pair of hands, they're only too happy, and to be honest, we come fairly cheap. She's come to seek advice from Antoine Fatiga, who represents seasonal workers with the CGT trade union. He says he's never had so many messages from desperate seasonal workers before. Billions of euros are being handed out to the tourist sector, but nothing is asked for in return. There's no requirement that seasonal workers get hired. When the Works Ministry examines claims for partial unemployment, they could simply have asked, how many seasonal workers did you hire last year? And how many are you hiring now? And to then look at the difference between the two. In the valleys in the Savoie region, unemployment is 30% higher than this time last year. Clement Bailey co-owner of a ski shop in Courchevel didn't take on any extra staff this year.
2: On 30 on est, uh...
0: There are usually 30 of us, but there are only about five or six now, he says. Lots of people will soon no longer be eligible for benefits. It's complicated for them. I wanted to hire them using the partial unemployment scheme, but it would have cost me 100,000 euros a month. I can't advance that kind of money. In fact, it's a good job we didn't do it because we would have gone under. For Antoine Fatiga, the shortage of jobs could push people away from the mountains for good.
2: People who have been here a
0: long time have been telling me that they're going to see if there's more work in town. The mountains are emptying. It's a bit like with farming. People are leaving the mountains. Really? And thanks to Alexi Bedou for the interviews in that report.
1: So, Alison, the lifts are closed, but um, I did see that in Courchevel, they've allowed a taxi minibus service to take people to the top of the mountain so they could
0: ski down. Yeah, what a cheek. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course, those skiers are thrilled, but uh, the initiatives come in for plenty of criticism on ecological grounds for a start. Uh, One person tweeted, Courchevel, the height of stupidity, Um, the, the mountain is suffering and the virus is circulating.
1: Yeah, I mean, ecologically speaking, there's already been a lot of questioning about the future of skiing in France with climate change, right? Like temperatures going up, less snow, you
0: know, what do you do in the mountains in the winter when there's no snow? Exactly. And, and COVID has pushed that reflection uh, a, that bit further, you know, talking about diversifying not just the activities themselves, but maybe the whole economic model. Because mm. the, these mountain regions, you know, they went full into tourism uh, with the decline of farming and other industries so they're using their snow in the winter and then green tourism in the summer but the pandemic has shown the limits to all of that this year clearly is a write-off economically and some businesses are already thinking how they might better prepare for next year just in case it isn't business as usual. go back to the French Revolution. So I'm thinking 1789, right? That was the big one. But the music Mm. suggests maybe not.
1: No, no, you're right. So we're talking about an earlier one in the 14th century, the Middle Ages. On February 22nd, 1358, Étienne Marcel, who was a bourgeois leader in Paris, tried to force his way into controlling the monarchy.
0: Étienne Marcel, right, yeah. He has a Paris metro station named after him, Mm -hmm. I've always wondered who he was.
1: Well, so he was born in 1316 into one of the most important bourgeois families in Paris in the 14th century. They were clothiers. And in 1354, he became provost of the merchants, which was a very powerful position in France at the time because um, there had been established a kind of legislative assembly called the Etat Generaux or States General, made up of the three classes of subjects or estates. So the nobility, the clergy and the commoners and the commoners were represented by the merchants. So Étienne Marcel had some clout there.
0: Yeah, sounds like he was a bit of a man of the people in a way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sort of, I guess, but a bourgeois
0: man of the people.
1: Um, And now remember, this is a very chaotic time. We're in the midst of the Hundred Years' War.
0: Mm, Indeed, so there were a lot of conflicts at that time. We're in the Middle Ages, conflicts between the rulers of England and the kings of France, the Valois. So they were all fighting over who had the right to rule France, because mm-hmm. France at the time was the largest kingdom in Western Europe.
1: Yeah, and Étienne Marcel shows up in the first third of that, let's say. The French king, John II, Jean Le Bon, was broke. Um, He needed to pay for his army to fight the English. In March 1356, he convened a meeting of the Etats Généraux to raise money. Étienne Marcel, of course, was part of it, not too happy about more taxes being imposed by the king. Mm -hmm. Then um, John was captured by the English at the Battle of Poitiers in September of that year. And his heir, um, his nephew, the Dauphin Charles, just 18 years old, he took over. And the next year, Charles called another Etat Général to raise more money. And Étienne Marcel saw an opportunity. The Dauphin was in a very weak position. He'd actually abandoned the battlefield at Poitiers, where his uncle, the king, was captured. Um, so he didn't look very good. And and Marcel pushed at that point for a reform of the administration of the kingdom, figuring he'd get something past the Dauphin. Mm. In March of 1357, Charles agreed to what was called the Grande Ordonnance, which would actually put limits on the power of the monarchy, giving control to the Etat Général with a council kind of overseeing the royal administration, in particular, finances.
0: So did all of this, in a way, lay down the roots for the French Revolution that would uh, come about more than 400 years later?
1: Well, I mean, you might say, right, with like controls over the monarchy and and already thinking about limiting their power. But it turns out at that point, it didn't work very well. Um, The Guardian Council didn't have the political experience to keep Dauphin Charles in check, King John from his prison actually forbade the application of the ordinance. Hmm. Etienne Marcel realized he hadn't been able to control the monarchy legally, so he rallied the people of Paris against the Dauphin and
0: the king. Insurrectional Paris. Insurrectional,
1: exactly. (laughs) And on February 22nd, 1358, he led a mob of 3,000 armed men to the palace on the Ile de la Cité. He found the Dauphin in his chambers, being protected by two marshals, and they were assassinated. Though Marcel spared the Dauphin, he thought he was weak enough that he'd be able to control him. Um, He covered him actually in a red and blue cloak, which were the colors of the bourgeoisie of Paris, very Mm. symbolic. And uh, Marcel took over. He forced the Dauphin to instate the 1357 ordinance, and, and he put himself on the overseeing committee. So in a way, he ruled France. Well, I mean, you could say Paris being France, but, um, you know, not much beyond Paris. And it was only for a few months. He didn't have the support outside of the city. The Dauphin, who'd escaped, um, ended up being able to consolidate support outside of Paris. The bourgeoisie ended up abandoning Marcel. He really couldn't defend his position. And so a few months later, on July 31st, 1358, he was actually assassinated. And the next day, the Dauphin entered triumphantly into the city and the
0: revolution was over so Marcel, I mean, is he considered a hero? Um, you know, he's got a metro named after him. He's got a street. There's a statue of him here in Paris.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, for Paris, he is a hero. And and at the time, you know, obviously maybe not. He was probably seen more as a traitor. But with hindsight, of course, I mean, he, he opposed the monarchy, mm. right? Today, that's seen as a noble thing to do. Um, he's definitely a hero to Parisians, and and probably still is
3: ailleurs sénégalais et au harki qui a profité de qui la république n'est innocente que dans vos songes et vous
0: n'avez les mains blanches que dans vos mensonges nous les arapés de noirs on n'est pas là par hasard So
1: February is Black History Month in the United States, at least. It's a celebration of the people and events in the history of the African diaspora.
0: And the UK marks it as well, although uh, in October, not now. Yeah, Mm.
1: yeah. And the Netherlands and Ireland, other countries have their, their Black History celebrations, but not in France, of course, despite its history with the African diaspora and colonization and all that. Um, there have been attempts to launch observances of black history in France. For example, in 2012, a woman named Abula Sumaoro started an association called Black History Month um, in English, actually. And and because she started with a focus on the U.S., on African-American history, maybe easier to get past in France where it's really difficult to talk about race. Um, but it didn't last. She actually stopped organizing her Black History Month um, events in 2016. She found it really hard to get funding and support in France. And I talked to her, um, she's a she's an academic, she's a professor at the University of Tours, about the difficulty for France to address race and, and blackness in particular. Um, she published a book last year called Le Triangle et l'Hexagone, Reflections sur une Identité Noire, Reflections on a Black Identity. It's a part autobiography, but also situated kind of in a scholarly examination of blackness in France. And in our conversation, she zeroed in on geography. For her, France approaches race from the perspective of mainland France, which she calls hexagonal France, whereas France, with its colonial past, is spread out all over the world, even today has territories in the Caribbean and the Indian Ocean.
3: France, most of the time, limits itself to its European parts. And that neglect of the overseas departments is really what enabled France to cut off itself from racial matters from blackness and and other, you know, racial or ethnic identities.
1: Why is that? I mean, there there have been black people in mainland France, hexagonal France, for a very long time. It's not like
3: there aren't any. Because the presence of black people in hexagonal France is often associated with immigration and with foreignness. Mm. When, if you look at the overseas departments, some of them have been French possessions, French territories, since 1848.
1: Blackness has turned into something about being from somewhere else. So, so I guess then that makes it hard to talk about blackness as a concept.
3: Yes, because it's not supposed to exist. And the Fifth Republic, which is our current constitution, does not recognize uh, race as a legal category, unlike, unlike the United States of America. But simply because it doesn't work that way, uh, legally speaking, doesn't mean that race and blackness do not exist. They just unfold in different manners.
1: So, so then th- I guess it is this idea of universalism, right? That, that everybody is supposed to be the same, even if the lived experience isn't.
3: Mm-hmm. I think that this is about the ideals that are being upheld, this colorblindness, uh, everybody is equal, that the dichotomy that exists is only between nationals and foreigners. And if you're French, you're just French. But these are ideals. The reality does not match those lofty ideals. I'm all for universalism. If it's real, I want to dream, but (laughs) I need reality. I want my dreams to come true.
1: You've anchored a lot of your writing and a lot of your thinking and your latest book in in your personal experience. I mean, Mm -hmm. your book is is an analysis, essays, but it's also autobiography, a memoir. You've made it very personal.
3: Exactly. This is really about, uh, you know, coming out or, I don't know, daring to say things the way they are not the way we want them to be. I felt an imperative to, uh, to perhaps make sense of my own trajectory. What does it mean to be born, uh, you know, Mabula Sumoro in Paris, France, to have parents who came from the Ivory Coast, and the Ivory Coast was a former French colony, and, and to be French myself today and to be a citizen of color. Whether France want to uh, discuss it or not is not the issue.
1: I want to talk about the influence of the United States and all this on mm-hmm. thinking of race and the way race is talked about. I mean, there's often accusations, right, that, that France, like these ideas are, are sort of an influence of the United States. But, um, you know, you've, you've spent time in the U.S., a lot of French black intellectuals have. And you've talked about this need for what you've called like a detour, right, to better mm-hmm. see yourself.
3: Talk about leaving France and, and what that does to your, to your views on things. Mm-hmm. When I arrived in the United States, I was identified as a, as a black woman, but I was also identified as a French woman. From France, you know, people would, would not tell me I was French. They were telling me, where are you from?
1: Like, where are you from? Like, this is what you got growing up here in France. Yes,
3: uh, always, systematically. And, and to me, what prompted the question of my origins was the color of my body. So what, what happened to me in the United States was, you know, this feeling of community, this feeling of, uh, of being black, but also this recognition of my French uh, citizenship. To my parents, we were Ivorian, and we were black, and we were African, and we were not from there. And that matched the, the discourse from outside saying that we were temporary French inhabitants. And then when I go to the, the United States, and I think about home, my family happens to be in France. So France becomes my home. France is the country that I know the most.
1: So you ended up in, in the US, you know, because you did, but I guess maybe just going anywhere would have had maybe the same effect of just leaving and coming
3: back. Exactly. And I think that academically speaking, I could find a lot of information, a lot of courses devoted to those matters. And that was not accessible in France. So I, when I went to the U.S., I did not only meet Americans or African-Americans. There were also, you know, faculty coming from all around the world, uh, coming from the, the African diaspora and even French people. Right? Marie Scondé was there, Édouard Glissant was also there, and that got me into, you know, francophone literature and francophone cultures that I had never uh, had access to from France.
1: So so the United States has had quite an influence on you and and how you see yourself and also just determining professionally where your focus of study is but but I want to talk about the the influence of the United States today in France um looking at Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. you know last summer the the murder of George Floyd um set off massive protests and and even here in France, right? Mm-hmm. That also sparked protests. Can you, can you talk about the connection there between, between the United States and France on, on these issues?
3: I think France was tricked mm. because France um, traditionally and since um, the establishment of the United States of America, France has always had an eye on the US right? People tend to forget, but France was an ally um, of the Patriots during the war for independence. But since then, there has been an intellectual and even political interest. So for France to cover George Floyd, for France to cover Black Lives Matter is nothing new. It simply, at this particular moment, gave the opportunity for French activists who had been organizing around issues of police brutality, but also racial discrimination and all those matters, to say to France, you're not going to hide once more behind the the United States' current news. There are issues in France too.
1: It's nothing new, but this time it worked.
3: This time it worked. There were debates around police brutality, around racism and discrimination. And they continue at a level that was unprecedented. So it worked, but things did not begin in 2020. Um,
1: So, I mean, there's a lot of criticism and pushback, people saying these are outsider
3: ideas, you're breaking this idea of everybody being equal, and there's a lot of quite violent pushback. And and that could be looked at in two different ways. Maybe a kind of increased uh, domination, But I think that uh, the hostility can also point to the, um, the impossibility to avoid those matters. So in that, it is positive. What I mean is that when I was growing up, those topics, they were not mainstream topics. There were no debates. There were nobody insulting a person of color on television because there was no persons of color on television. The fact that today they have to talk with us, they have to um, get angry at us, means that they have to recognize us and take us into account. So they're still not treating us well, but at least they cannot avoid us. This hostility is the marker of the... Um, I don't know, more grounded, more entrenched presence of those populations of color.
1: So do you think, I mean, you think France is ready to sort of address these things and and fully take these on?
3: I don't know if France is ready. But I know that France has to be ready. And I, I think that the younger generation is not waiting for any sort of permission. They're just doing it. If I'm you know, looking at um, the Victoire de la Musique. The French Grammys that were just awarded last week. There were three black women who were nominated. That was the first time ever. And those three black women are in their 20s, are uh, interested in um different way to, I don't know, portray or perform blackness. Some of them are activists and have been vocal about social issues like this form of bold blackness is really not waiting for any type of permission.
0: we end the show with the song Corps by Isolde. She was one of the three black artists that Mabula mentioned there, Sarah, uh, nominated yeah. for a Victoire and she won. Uh, she won the uh, Best New Female Artist award.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And she used her acceptance speech to, to call out racism. She's the child of Cameroonian immigrants. She spoke of what she called the legitimate anger that she and other minorities have against France, which she said took away the dignity of our parents. Yes. So pretty strong words. Mm-hmm. She says our anger is legitimate and I want all of France to hear it.
0: So that's it for Spotlight en France this week. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Please
1: get in touch. You can send us questions or comments to spotlight.france at rfi.fr. We also post extra material like photos and videos on Instagram at
0: Spotlight on France. And Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. And this episode was mixed by Yann Bordelas. We'll be back
1: in two weeks on Thursday, February 18th. Until then, find previous episodes of Spotlight on France at RFIenglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye Allison.
0: Bye bye Sarah.
2: J'ai perdu la tête. Oh et le chemin de ma maison. Quoi qu'il advienne, je retrouverai les clés de la raison. J'ai perdu la tête. La Dviane, je retrouverai les clés de la raison et